Let's begin as we always do with prayer and pray for the service and pray for the people that listen in on the internet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another uh, Sunday for us to gather around the means of grace, for us to pray to you and to fellowship and to open the scriptures. And we pray that our hearts and minds would be changed as we believe the truth, that you would sanctify us, that you'd be at work in lives to make us better husbands and wives and, and fathers and children or whatever our role in life is. We pray for the scattered saints around the world that listen to us. We thank you for them and pray that you would bless them and be with them and minister to them as well. And we ask you for wisdom from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are going to study 2 Corinthians 5. We, we introduced 18 last week, and I think we did look at those cross-references. I think we did. We have a little section on reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's our topic, and God is reconciling the world to himself. It was interesting to me to find out as I was digging around in the Greek and some of my resources, that these are actually are very difficult passages. I, I just read them. I said, oh, this is pretty straightforward, but it really isn't. There's at least three different ways verse 19 has been uh, understood, and there's all kinds of issues and questions, and I'll do the best I can to uh, plow through all that material and get us pointed in the right direction. But starting with verse 18, now, all these things, 2 Corinthians 5.18, all these things are from God who reconciled us uh, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, one of the things that, are, that some scholars have pointed out is that some of what we're reading here is Paul's autobiographical material. He has been talking about himself and his ministry. So he probably, and remember he's using the epistolatory plural. I think I said that right. I'm not going to try twice. <laughs> Don't ask me what I said, but it uh, means that when a writer uses a plural uh, out of either humility or perhaps he's thinking of the other apostles with him. So the ministry of reconciliation that Paul has is he's, when he talks about us, carries on through because in verse 20 he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So he's talking about himself as he has throughout the section. But certainly it's a valid implication that when he reconciled us, Paul, he also reconciles all believers. Uh, so we, but it, so it would, uh, by implication, be the same for all believers. And God is at work. This, this is God's work, reconciliation. And God reconciles us to himself through Christ and sends us out with a message of reconciliation. I think I mentioned last week that justification is a legal term and reconciliation is a relational term. And there are two aspects of the same event, being converted, being saved, being made right with God. It involves being just before the judge of the universe, having right standing before God. 
But it also means being reconciled, the reconciliation of previous enemies. We were not uh, perhaps as good as we dreamed that we were. We were not these noble-minded people just trying to figure out what life was about. According to the Bible, we were enemies of God, whether we knew it or not. We were enemies, but now reconciled. Uh, I think, didn't we... I see a quote from Garland. I, you know, I'm, frankly, we had that big discussion on logic last week, and I kind of lost track of how much of this we actually covered. Well, here's a quote from Garland. I'm quite sure I didn't do that. When, God, when Paul says all this or all these things is from God, he makes clear that the new creation... 2 Corinthians 5.17 is exclusively God's work. Exclusively God's work. Now, when, when we discuss the solas of the Reformation, you know what those are? The alones. There's five solas, right? And they are Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you want to read the Council of Trent and the 33 canons on justification, interesting study. Um, I've studied that more than once. Carefully went through the Trent's uh, canons where they anathematize the Reformers, amongst others, not just the Reformers. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, they said if you say, and then if you read what what they're talking about, it's what the reformers said, and then so basically, the reformers are all cursed to hell by Trent. But not just the Reformation doctrine; they did actually condemn Pelagianism in those the first three canons on justification in Trent are condemnations of Pelagianism, which rightly we would agree with him on that point. Okay, but so when he says this is exclusively God's work, that's the thing. It may be hard to understand, and I've talked to some people that are new to the church, and they, they've been asking me about this. They say, well, we can't understand this. We can't understand this. Uh, and I thought, I thought we did something. And... I know, I understand that it's difficult, but we've got to accept the testimony of Scripture. And there's a very, very good reason for the solas of the Reformation. Because why did they say alone? Why did they add that and be damned by the Catholic Church for adding alone? Well, because to distinguish their doctrine of justification from faith from the Catholic doctrine, okay, of this infused righteousness rather than imputed righteousness. And so, if you said, we, well, we believe in faith, Rome says, so do we, no problem. We believe in grace, Rome says, so do we, no problem. We believe in the scriptures, Rome says, so do we, no problem. Do you see where I'm going with this? And they're going to agree with the work. They're going to agree on every point if you say them and don't make any exclusive claims that it's God's work. But as soon as you say, we believe in faith alone, now you're damned to hell. We believe in grace alone, damn you to hell. Anathema, that's what that means. Okay? Because what was the alone doing? 
It was taking it out of the hands of the Catholic Church and their prelates. They were selling it and dishing it out and withholding it as they saw fit. It took it totally out of their hands because if God's doing it, what can the the church, the church can't keep it away from you. The only thing the church could do to keep you from you is fail to preach the gospel. And in which case, God will uh, send somebody else to do it because his gospel will be preached. Yes? Well, the same thing is happening now in our day because the Reformation doctrines are just as pertinent. If you go to an average church that... uh, a liberal church or a uh, mystical church or another church that's wandering and say, do you believe in grace? Do you believe in faith? Do you believe in the scriptures? Do you believe in the glory of God? They all, yes, they'll say yes. Absolutely. But when you say alone, no, no, you have to have the scriptures and personal revelations, otherwise you don't hear God. It's always it's the same concept yeah, it's that's a, being thought now. That's a now. great point. It's a very good point. Where Keith has a little project going, he's working on, because they're bringing some guy into town who's teaching that you go to his seminar, you will hear God's voice, guaranteed. And you're going to have spontaneous thoughts, and you're going to know it's God talking to you. Guaranteed. Okay, so... Or you're guaranteed or your money back. God, is that you? <laughs> How are you going to prove whether it was God or not? Um, but yeah, so that when you say scripture alone, then you've made, then you, then you then drawn a line in the sand and you mark out a theological territory. And so what's the problem today? And that's why you hear us people say, well, why are you emphasizing that? Because the Reformation is under attack and it has been for the last 150 years in America since the day of Finney. Uh, back there with Bill. And so we're seeing we have to get back to these things so we get on solid footing. And so God gets the glory and we're protected from it's the, once you get away from the lo- alone, it's all the other stuff that gets you in trouble. Right. Yes. Well, that's what happened in, uh, in 1998 uh, when Chuck Colson, the same guy who's got a uh, column in Minnesota Christian Chronicle, uh, got a million dollars from uh, ecumenicist uh, Sir... Templeton. Uh, Is it Templeton? Templeton. Sir, yeah. Sir John Templeton for setting up an ecumenical talk between Rome and, uh, and, and uh, the major leaders of the Catholic Church. This went on uh, for another two years, and then they, they uh, changed a couple of wordings. And then finally in 2000, it fell apart over one word, and that was, you know, faith in the Bible alone, and the Catholic wouldn't do Really? Rome wouldn't do that because they wanted the tradition. Of course, then they got busted for all the pedophilia. So it, okay. it really uh, is very telling, the historical basis of the Reformation yeah. along with... It's still... A, it's, yeah, thank you. That's a, a pertinent comment. That They still won't go with the alone to this very day. Now, the thing is, that doesn't surprise me, okay? The Catholic Church is what it is, and it has been what it has been, and I'm not surprised they're not going to give up their territory, but what's surprising me is that so many so-called Protestants, they'll fight against you if you say alone just as much as the Catholics. They want to add something to God's work. They, they can't accept that it's the work of God. And so let's go back to my quote. All these things is from God makes clear that the new creation, 517, is exclusively God's work. You, did you know the new creation is just as much God's work as the old creation? 
I mean, and I'm talking about the physical one. How did, how did the physical universe come into existence? God spoke. What was there before God spoke? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. What did the physical universe contribute? Oh, evolution. That's right. <laughs> God spoke and evolution started happening. No, 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 no. We don't believe that. So when God speaks, creation comes into being because of the creative power of God's word. I just listened to a, a, a CD by John MacArthur where he was using the resurrection of Lazarus as being analogous to a, a person being a new creation. Because when Lazarus was dead, he came out of the grave. He didn't do anything. He didn't add. What did Lazarus contribute? Well, nothing. He just came alive. And so MacArthur was saying that's exactly what the new creation is. Just as, as God spoke and the world came into existence, God speaks a word, and when we hear it in our hearts and minds, by God's grace, a new creation comes forth. Yes. Yeah, this is, uh, when, when you use the word speaks, God speaks, that's all powerful, I believe. But, like, in, I've been in various evangelical churches where they have whole groups that come in and speak in tongues. And I, it's almost like I, when I, was, I was searching so hard for an authentic, personal revelation of God that I, I almost felt you had to do that. But it's, that's just people speaking. It's not God speaking. Well, if it's legitimate, if it's legitimate speaking in tongues, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, it's a man talking to God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. But this is what, well, what, that's not what makes somebody a new creation. It is the power of the preached word. 1 Corinthians, no, excuse me, Romans 10. How will they hear? They need to hear. But hearing comes from the word of Christ. All right. Now that's a genitive, and it could mean the word about Christ or the word that comes from Christ. Or it could be a plenary genitive, and it's both. <laughs> it's about him and from him, and it penetrates into hardened hearts and makes new life, creates new creations. Yes. And the, the whole concept is God's, since Sinai, God has spoken to man through mediators that are men. God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to the people, and the people heard with their ears. God spoke to the prophets, the prophets spoke to the people, and the people heard with their ears. God became a man and spoke to the people, and the people heard with their ears. And those men wrote down what God spoke in the scriptures. We read it, and we can say to people definitively, God's commanding everyone everywhere to repent right now. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, my voice is the voice of God because I'm taking the words of God and giving yep. it to somebody. That's true. And that word has power, and people that listen are raised to life in the same way that Lazarus was raised to life because the words of God have the power, not the person, not the messenger. Yeah, that, I absolutely agree. And that's why we define prophecy as bringing forth valid implications and applications from Scripture. So the preacher who says that the, the terms of the gospel authoritatively and applies them and proclaims the true word of God is the messenger of God speaking with just as much authority as Scripture because it is the Word of God. All right? And so when Paul says, be reconciled to God, he speaks with authority. Now let me get back to my quote. He continues in this mode by asserting that humans have done nothing to reconcile to God, to reconcile God. God 
has instead acted to reconcile them. Okay? Reconciliation, therefore, begins with God, who acts unilaterally. It's affected through Christ, whose death removed the barrier to reconciliation. Christ's death, however, requires our response. All right? But, where does our response come from? Grace. By faith, through grace. And that grace is grace alone. But I agree, we're not reconciled until we actually believe the gospel. Until the response happens. Just as Lazarus is still dead until he comes out of the grave. So God's, Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come out of the grave. Lazarus, being dead, heard anyhow, and he came out of the grave. So his response was a response to what God did, because he had no power to come out of the grave until God made him alive. It's a good CD from MacArthur, and you can get it for free. Paul is the only author in the New Testament to use the noun reconciliation, katalage. And the verb to reconcile, katalasen. When the verb is used in the active voice, Christ or God is always the subject. When it's used in the passive voice, humans are the subject. In other words, God reconciles, man is reconciled. And um, he goes on. Human sinfulness created the problem, and this sinful condition had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. Sin incurs God's holy wrath, so it could not be treated lightly or swept under the rug. God could never be reconciled to sin, but God does uh, not turn away from sinners and leave them to their deserts. Instead, uh, while humans were still in open revolt, God acted in love to bring hostility to an end, Romans 5.8, and to bring about peace, Romans 5.1. So that's what God has done through the gospel. And and. He uses the, the, the power of the preached word, which is preached with clarity and authority, and what he uses it for is to save lost sinners. All right? And so why do we preach the gospel? Because that's what God is going to use. And he'll use the gospel on anybody's lips. The gospel's not more powerful on the lips of a sil- silver-tongued orator than it is on the lips of somebody that's a little halting and unsure of themselves. Because the power is not in our eloquence, and the power is not in our uh, personal confidence in our own ability to speak, but the power is in the word itself, the, God, the word of faith which we preach, that Paul, Paul talked about in Romans 10. So be encouraged, dear ones, you have the blessed privilege of announcing to humans the terms whereby they can be reconciled to God. Is, uh, is the uh, power of God and the words of God that a man would speak uh, limited by his geographical location or the building that he uh, speaks in? Nope. So in other words... That it's, it's, it's not up and down I-35 either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead, Bill. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, so many people here have uh, have heard street preachers, and uh, you know I have uh, since I've been a younger Christian, and there's been an objection uh, by a lot of uh, Christians, and I'm I'm just speaking because I am a street preacher, uh, that there isn't a, you know you're not doing it the right way or you're too harsh or something like that, 
But, you know, the next time you see a street preacher on the, on the uh, outside and he may look a little bit disheveled and he's talking to maybe five people, you might think about what Bob just said here. This guy is not in a church. Uh, you know, he may be speaking before five or 10,000 people. You don't know. But because he's not 501c3 or he's not uh, registered or licensed or something like that, that doesn't make it any less the Word of God. Amen. Amen. What makes it less the Word of God is when we get the message wrong. All right? And, Robert, you remember a couple of years ago, you guys had a stories about that, about these people that could lead hundreds to the Lord. I just heard another story like that the other day from somebody. I can't remember who told me. Well, because they, they changed the terms so that a person didn't actually have to be converted. And, and what they did was they said they just grab anybody that comes down the street. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Yes or no? Where do you want to go, heaven or hell? Well, I would rather go to heaven than to hell. Okay, repeat after me. And they say a few words, and they said, all right, see you in heaven. And they go down and find the next one. Well, that was easy. It was great. I got that. It's like as good as, well, I won't mention Bill Murray and Caddyshack, <laughs> the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I got that going for me. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, what's telling is that even a non-believer or a pagan or a, a, an enemy of God can announce the terms of the gospel clearly. And somebody could be saved because the words are true, even though the messenger himself doesn't believe it. So you can go to a dead church or a church that hates God, and if they read or preach the true message and say, this is what the message of God is, and you believe it, it does have its power. It's not the speaker that conveys the power. It's, it's the message itself. It's the message itself. And, and Luther affirmed that, that people were converted in the Catholic Church. It's, well, he didn't say anything nice about the church. <laughs> but yeah, in spite of their whatever he said, Luther had a way with words. <laughs> and, uh, but if the gospel was there somewhere, some, someone could hear it and believe it. And you could be in a liberal church where the pastor doesn't even believe the gospel and hear them reciting the Apostles' Creed and possibly come to faith if you really believe it, if, 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 if it gets in here. Well, Jesus really did die for my sins, and what really was raised on the third day, and this is real. This is this really happened. Now, I think it's more, it's much. <laughs> that doesn't excuse the unbelieving preacher, but God uses the message. But you can have somebody who's actually a born again Christian in the pulpit that doesn't want to preach the message because they're trying to be popular, and 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 even though they're a true Christian and they really know God, the people in their church will not be converted. Because he's working through the true message, not through something that's not really the gospel. So you could, you could get converted in a liberal church that had the true message in spite of itself and sit lost in an evangelical church because the preacher just as soon not tell you the true message. Oh, Luann. So then using that scenario, what would be the danger of the person who's saved in one of those situations staying? Uh, I don't think... The danger of staying is that all, if all you did was hear this in some hymn or in a creed, but from the pulpit they're just teaching out of the Reader's Digest like they did when I was a kid, is that you, would, you just can't do that because it says, as newborn babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. 
And we're told to fellowship. You would be basically not putting yourself under the means of grace because it, Acts 2.42, remember, as soon as they were converted, God added them to the church, what did they do? They fellowshiped around apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, and prayer. And they did that with the people who were added to the church. In other words, two true converts. So I believe every Christian, if it's possible, if it's possible, I mean, that you could get saved in a, a jail where you're in isolation, and there's times it may not be possible. But I think every Christian, if it is possible, should join with other Christians under the means of grace and get under the Word of God and get with people that know the Lord and pray with one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and receive the Lord's Supper together and do the things that God's given Christians to do. Because if you do that, then you'll grow, then you'll grow in sanctification and you'll be equipped for the work of the ministry. But if you sit in that dead church where the pastor's not even converted, you don't even have fellowship with your own pastor because you're a new creation and he's, he's not. I remember a MacArthur pastor's conference. There was a Lutheran fellow there who had not yet left a liberal synod. And, he, and there was a question and answer time and the Lutheran conservative, actually I know who it was, but I won't say right now, uh, but well-known Lutheran, who's since left that synod, asked John MacArthur, should I stay in this synod even though we have all these liberal things going on? And you know what MacArthur's question back was? He said, are these guys that you're in the synod with converted? Are they born-again Christians? And that pastor just sat there and kind of got a... He just... You could see the wheels turning. (laughs) Because he couldn't say they were. And MacArthur said, well, then you have no, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness? He said, you, you don't have any fellowship with them anyhow because they're not converted. So you have, you, there's no such thing as fellowship with the non-converted, not in a biblical sense of what fellowship means. And it wasn't too long after that, and he left that and got into a different group where the people actually were converted. Does that make sense? But it doesn't surprise me about old mainline denominations. What surprises me is people are having to do this with evangelical churches. Okay, so B, let's get back to reconciling. He was in Christ. Let's go to verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, there's all kinds of questions about this. For one thing, verse 19 says God was in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that Paul's teaching the doctrine of the incarnation? That God was in Christ in the incarnation as Christ is on the earth. God is in Christ. He's fully human and fully God. Well, that's a true doctrine, but, what is, but is that what Paul means here? And so, having looked this up in the Greek, it's a good translation from the Greek, but it seems that this parallel, if you look at the parallel, verse 18, through Christ who reconciled us to himself through Christ, in Christ. I don't know that Paul's changing topics, so I'm going to agree with the scholars who say that though he changed his wording a little bit, he's still talking about what he did in Christ or through Christ. Okay? So I would, I would interpret it to be parallel, what he did through Christ. And not just a, because why would he introduce... The doctrine of incarnation is interesting, but Christ is the agent of reconciliation. Okay, and then the imperfect tense is another thing, all right? 
reconciling the world. So the imperfect tense means uh, action in the past without any discussion about its completion. And so the scholars are uh, uh, talking about that and what does it mean? Why isn't it a completed thing? Uh, perhaps the reason mean, being is that it doesn't happen I mean, it doesn't happen for the sinner until they actually repent and believe the gospel. Uh, there's things to consider there. And then the next question is, what does he mean by the world? In what sense is the world reconciled to God? It seems to me that the world's still in rebellion to God. Now, this, again, was some theologians, made, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, say, there's the objective reconciliation that, so the world's already reconciled to God, but subjective doesn't have until the sinner repents. But I don't believe that because that doesn't fit all the terminology in the Bible, especially passages that says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and gives the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Romans 1. So if reconciliation is considered already done in a legal sense, well then why is God's wrath still directed against sinners? And then we'd have a totally different message to preach. Instead of preaching to people that they're facing God's wrath because they've broken his holy law, we'd preach to them, you're already reconciled to God, just own up to that. But we don't have any evidence for that being the way the gospel was preached in the book of Acts. Do we? There is no no reconciliation unless they... Except Jesus, through they got to go through Jesus to get reconciled yeah, to God. Yeah, agree. So how can they preach it like that without preaching about what Jesus is for? Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't. I agree with you. And if you look at Acts, Peter indicted the people for his their sins. Peter didn't get up and say, "Well, Jesus died, so your sins are forgiven." Just come to realize that. He told them, "You're sinners. You crucified the Lord of Glory. God raised Him from the dead, and you need to repent." Yeah, what you have. And he said, repent. Okay, so I, I don't accept that. Now, so what is he talking about the world? Now, here's, again, you run into this same issue in a whole lot of passages, depending on your a priori theology. For example, in John 3.16, God so loved the world, he said he's only begotten son. Although that's a little bit different, because I would believe God loves the world, every person without exception, in some sense. I believe he has special love for his own people, but he loves the world. How do we know that? <laughs> exactly. The rain is still falling on the just and the unjust, and he's showing kindness to people that blaspheme his name. So I think there's a, that could be translated that way. But here, does it mean every person without exception, or does it mean the Gentiles uh, and not just the Jews? As sometimes, that's the meaning. Now, I'll show you a case where that is the meaning, so it's within the range of meanings. Turn with me to Romans 11 and verse 15, and I want to show you a parallel construction that uses the same term reconciliation. And I think it might shed some light on the passage that we're looking at today. In Romans 11, Romans 11 and verse 15, it's talking about the Jews and how that God had a purpose, even in the fact that the Jews rejected Messiah and most of them wouldn't turn to him. 
And Paul is teaching that God's purpose in that was that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. In other words, had it just stayed in Jerusalem and they would have set up the kingdom and everybody stayed right there, that wasn't the purpose of God. That's going to happen later, the second advent. But it went out. And that's what he said. Um, so verse 15 says this, For if their rejection, that is the Jews, if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? But, does Paul mean the wor- by the world there every person without exception? Well, we have reason to believe he only means the Gentiles because he's distinguishing them from the Jews. There, the Jews' rejection means reconciled for the world, the non-Jews. Okay, Gretchen? When I was a very young girl, I remember in my home, which was a very uh, racially bigoted home, the only way that I could explain to myself that God loved Daddy and everyone in the world is that God loves everyone. And I was thinking, despite your physical traits, okay? Yeah. This is a child's mind trying to reason this out. That's so, so are you commenting on John 3.16, that God yeah, loves John the world? John 3.16. Yeah, God loves the whole Jesus world. Jesus loves everyone. What we're wanting to know is what Paul means in this verse. I believe in John 3.16, he believe, he's teaching God loves all persons. But here's what it's saying here. If there, the Jews' rejection, be reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance be? The Jews, remember, at the end of the age, all Israel saved? Okay. But look back at verse 11 and see a parallel statement here. I say then, they, the Jews, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. May gonaita in the Greek, Paul's uh, phrase for his abhorrence of a possible implication. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So you see that the world is in a synonymous, par- parallel, synonymously parallel relationship in verse 11 and verse 15. So in that case, reconciliation of the world means reconciliation of not just Jews. All right? So, now back to our verse. We're just trying to know what Paul means. We know that some Jews, a remnant of the Jews, reconciled to God. We're, that's not Paul's point in either of these passages. But... Many times, because of the Jewish mind, salvation is for the Jewish nation. Messianic salvation is for the Jewish nation. And so they had to be told, no, it's not just you. It's for anyone out there. Okay? Now, in this case, reconciling the world to himself, does Paul mean, in some sense, universally reconciling everyone without exception? Or is he seeing reconciling persons from every nation, tribe, clan there may be. All right? I'm open for discussion. It says that uh, God so loved the world. And it it gives emphasis on that he loved the world so that that's why he created the world. And, And his emphasis based on nations of people, it says that if the spiritual elite, then he loved so loves them. So my point is, I don't know if God all loves, you know, he created human beings, but he created them to be obedient toward him and, yeah. to, and to communicate with him and to be his family. So if they refuse to do such, 
did what, what is God supposed oh, to so, do? Well, it's, that's their own fault. We're not debating about God's universal love. We are agreeing. God universally loves all persons without exception. But have all persons without exception been reconciled? No. That's my point. Okay. Okay, my question is, uh, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, I'm thinking that that's when the reconciliation of the world happened. But isn't that a conditional reconciliation, uh, providing the individual repent and put their trust in him? All right. But the world is still in a hostile relationship with God, is it not? And when you're reconciled to somebody, you know the hostilities have ceased. So if the world is reconciled to God, it sure doesn't look like it to me. So I don't. I believe God loves the world, but I don't believe the entire world is reconciled to God. I don't see it. I see hostility. Yes. The, yeah. the idea that the Gentiles would come to faith and be included really is a large theme with Paul because they were so long excluded. From the covenants of God, excuse me. Um, in fact, we see that in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 16, where it says, "And that He, that's God, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross." So, the idea that both Jews and Gentiles comprise the world, like Bob is saying, reconciling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue—that yeah. is the definition of world, not the idea of you know everybody's included in the kingdom of God. Uh, just because they exist in the human category. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what we're that's what we're saying. And okay. Now that brings us forward. Thank you, Eric. Well stated. And you had a good verse too. Um, not counting their trespasses against them. How is it that we would be in a condition that our trespasses are no longer? In fact, the word counting here is logizomai. From a real, we get our word logic, right? But it means reckoning. It's an accounting term. Okay, not reckoning or accounting. Looking in the legislature, okay, here we go, sins. Holy God, perfectly just, cannot ever allow any sin into his presence. And God is looking down on the, the accounting ledger. Counting. Accounting. I didn't say that? I don't know. Don't, don't believe what I say. Believe what I mean. <laughs> we used to say that down in Iowa. All right. Okay, I'll say it right. Well, whatever the case, he looks on the ledger, and how is it not going to be counted against us? If you're reconciled with God, all sins, past, present, future. Yeah, we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. All right? And so we're reconciled to God. And then it says, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what we do have that can go universally to all people without exception is the word of reconciliation, right? The reconciliation is only true for those who believe, but the word of reconciliation, I believe, can be part of a gospel presentation. In other words, we can present to people the fact that they are in a hostile relationship vis-a-vis God, whether they know it or not, because of their sin. And whether they know it or not, they're an enemy of God, but there's a means by which you can go from the status of God's enemy to God's son or daughter and have a relationship. All right? But it had the terms are the terms of the gospel, of the cross. 
and the blood atonement and repentance of faith and coming to God through the terms of the gospel. Then you're reconciled to God. I guess if you look at it that way, it's not so complicated. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, Nicole. I wonder, in light of what you're saying, if you would mind just commenting on Psalm uh, 5, the verses 4 and 5, and I'll just read them really quick. It says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Can you comment on that in light of... Well, that, that means that people who aren't reconciled to God are his enemies. And because they're still, their sin is still taken in, in, in their own account. And God's holy and he can't bear, he, he can't just pass over sins. It says that in, remember Romans 3? Jesus is the propitiatory sacrifice uh, so, that, so that God might be the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, having passed over sins previously committed, which is Passover terminology. Remember that? When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Yes. When he says reconciled, <clears throat> when it says reconciled, doesn't it mean that's an offer, not an accomplished fact? That's probably the, the meaning of the imperfect tense. If it was an accomplished fact, it'd probably be a different tense. There's a sense, see, there's a sense which it's all finished and it is accomplished. Okay? Because of the certainty of God's work. I'm not denying that. But there's also a progress in history in the sense that as history goes on, 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 on the face of the earth, God is adding people to the church. People are being converted. And actually, actually in 2 Peter 3, it says the reason for history going on, when the mockers say, well, you, you Christians believe that Jesus is going to come and judge the world, why should we believe this? This has been going on for 2,000 years. We don't buy it. You guys are just deluded. And Peter says what they don't know is that God is leaving space and time for repentance. There's still more people yet that will be reconciled to God. Yes. In God's mind, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the earth. Even before the world was created, God, Jesus was crucified. And in his mind, he knows each individual one who will be reconciled at the end of the age. This is not, it's not shocking to him. He has foreknowledge. As we live out history and the gospel is preached and some of the dead come to life when they hear it, we see that happening. But in God's mind, it is accomplished because he sees the end from the beginning, even as we live out history and we don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. There's several you know, sections in Revelation where it talks about the names in the book from before the foundation of the world. But whether or not, I had a discussion with some, a long discussion with somebody yesterday. You know, some people have a real hard time with the idea that God was the one who determines whose names in the book. So some people prefer to look at it as God foreknew who would come to him, and, and therefore they're in the book before the foundation of the world. And others would say God elected certain ones, and therefore on the scene of history they go into the book. And so after we discussed, discussed, discussed I said, okay, let's agree on this. If we preach the terms of the gospel accurately, whatever we privately believe in our mind, in my mind, I believe God does it, or in my mind, I believe that somehow man's choice caused the election. 
Do you think the same people end up in the book? Yes. Do you think the same people are saved? Yes. Do you think you're saved by the same terms? Yes. I said, all right. You think what you want to think. I'll think what I think. And let's go preach the gospel. And then the only issue then we had left was, he said, well, what if God erases them out? I said, all right. Now we've got a problem here. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Well, at first I was going to explain plain regenerative and a priori theology and all, but I'm not going to do that. You're not going to do that now? Simple okay. deal. Um, MacArthur, in that tape that you're talking about, in that CD, yes. talks about how can you preach the five solas, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and on the other hand, listen to the uh, commands that say we have to do all these things. How do you do it? And his answer to it was, I don't. How do you explain it? I don't. I just believe it. The Bible says do it, I do it. I, I lo- MacArthur is no uh, uh, secret that he's my favorite preacher. But I sent him a letter and I got two free CDs. <laughs> One of them is called Depravity and Inability. And the other is called Sovereign Election. I like them. Not everybody does, but I do. And I... And, and, the charge that if you believe that God's in charge that you won't preach the gospel? I don't, that's, why, why would you say that? Does MacArthur not preach the gospel? He's one of the few nationally known preachers that's at the forefront of battling for the preaching of the gospel. And I believe in election and I preach the gospel, so there's a couple of us. The, yes. the example you were just talking about a second ago with the one person uh, saying that it's all God and then the other person saying, well, maybe the thought was in your mind. Well, God would have put that thought in your mind. Well, if you're mono, yeah, if you believe in the solas, God is, is making a dead sinner lie. Uh, but keep studying. And what I've said to a number of people, because a lot of the new people here in the church have come from secret churches or churches that maybe gradually had gone away from the gospel over the last 20, 30 years, and they haven't been taught very well by the previous churches where they're not teaching, teaching, teaching. So I'm very patient. I'm not demanding that everybody agree with me on every point, but all I'm asking is that you open the Scriptures and keep learning. Just open the Scriptures and keep learning, and anybody's free to correct me if they see I'm not bringing out a valid implication from the Scripture we're talking about. The Scriptures can correct anybody, including elders, pastors, or anybody. But if it's something that's a matter of personal opinion or personal preference, that's not authoritative. All right. Yeah. I think we'd say as well that from our perspective as a human being walking through life, when we're converted, it appears that we did something. Because we're looking at it from our perspective, from a larger perspective, we did do God. something. We walked out of the grave. I walked. That's all I know. All of a sudden, I was walking out of the grave. I must have done something. When the, when the jail cell came open, I came out. <laughs> that's what that's what we perceive, but it's it's not necessarily the same perspective God gives us. Yeah, the the modernism part of it is all the things that happen up to the point where someone comes alive spiritually. All right. After that, then you, you can come out and sing the praises of God. 
And ironically, I've mentioned this many times, one of my favorite hymns is that one that was written by one of the Wesleys. And the Wesleys had a different theology than Whitfield and some of the others. But in their hymns, they had, they sang, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Remember that line? Am I getting it right? I'm not. <laughs> you don't remember it. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The chains fell off. The dungeon filled with light. The chains fell out. I arose and went forth. And I can say with Charles Wesley, I believe that was the author, I was a Wesley hymn, I can say, Amen, I agree, absolutely. That is exactly what happened. And so the, the dungeon filled with light, <laughs> the chains fall off, the door springs open, you walk out. So if you're a dead sinner, I say to you, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> walk out of that dungeon. And God will. God is the one who gives us the power to do that. Let's, let's just enter. No, I've got cross-references. Let's, we've got about seven minutes. Let's do cross-references. I'll get ready over here. Lincoln, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Pauline, Isaiah 43, 25. Uh, Dale and Michelle, that's right. Uh, Romans 3, 24 to 25. Michelle, Romans 4, 6 through 8. Keith. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, and Robert, 1 John 4, 10. 1 John 4, 10. Okay, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute inequity, and in who, whose spirit there is no deceit. Yes, and Paul cited that in Romans 4. How blessed is the man in whom the Lord did not impute iniquity. And that's, again, an accounting idea. And so Paul cited that in Romans 4 to prove justification by faith. He proved it from Abraham, and he proved it from David. So there you go. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Wow. God blots out your transgression for his sake. Wow. Why? Well, when he's talking to Israel, Israel was one who, who was the Lord's people and named the name of the Lord. His covenant people. And when he blots out the transgressions of Israel, he brings glory to his own name. Right? And there's other passages like that, like in Ezekiel 36. And when, remember one of the solas was to the glory of of God alone. So when God blots out your transgressions, He is bringing glory to His own name. And all the glory for our salvation, all of it, 100%, all of it, goes to God. And I'm not taking one bit of credit. All the glory goes to God. And then we get to go be with Him to praise Him for what he's done for all eternity. All right. Romans 3, 24 through 26. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for his blood 
or a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I alluded to that earlier. That's that passage about propitiation. That word means averting of God's wrath. And he did so through the blood of Christ. And the word for propitiation is the same word for mercy seat in Hebrews. And that's where the blood was poured out on the day of atonement. And he did it so that we might be right with God. Okay, Romans 4, 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Yeah, that was Psalm 32, 1 and 2 that we read earlier. There's where it's cited. And it says that it was not works. It was not works. Okay, and then 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, there's again that. Remember, that's just right on our discussion earlier. He reconciling the world to himself. Here he says our sins, not only ours, but those of the world. Now, how do we interpret that? Well, God is going to save people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue on the face of the earth. But it doesn't mean that everybody without exception is saved. So the whole world is, is universal in its scope, but it doesn't mean particular redemption universally. Right? Okay. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that same word again, averting God's wrath against sin, propitiation. So that's the word of reconciliation that God has committed to us. And may we continue to boldly proclaim it. And remember what I said even if you don't totally understand everything, or even if you have a different understanding than some others, if you get the gospel right and you proclaim it according to the terms laid out in the Bible, God will use it to convert to loss whatever we try to explain how that happens. Even if we don't have the whole ordo salutis figured out, that means order of salvation, we can at least got to get the gospel right. <laughs> Because the sinner doesn't need to know order of salutis to get saved. He just needs to know the terms of the gospel. All right. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs at 1030. Help us with the chairs.